Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. And it was not always amazing. There was a woman who told me my body hair was disgusting. There, you know... Was that my mom? It was your mom, actually. Yeah, my mom was on that trip, I think. It yeah. must have been her. Yeah. I'm so sorry <laughs> Carolyn's mom said that to you. I'm diking out, you're diking out. Let's dike out together. See what it's all about. Diking out, diking out, diking out, diking out. Hi, and welcome to Diking Out, a podcast that's following Lil Nas X to hell. I'm Carolyn Bergier. I'm Melody Kamali, and today we're diking out with editor, journalist, and author Gabrielle Korn about feminism. For some quick announcements. Yes, a reminder that May 16th, we want you to save the date if you're in the New York area. We're going to be doing a safe outdoor hangout along with Dyke Beer and various other queer sports leagues. Uh, of course, it does depend on the weather, so which is do your thing there will be dykes with masks on also mask dykes femme dykes every kind of dyke sporty dykes grilled dykes so many grilled dykes please tofu vegan dykes vegan dogs there will be yeah it's gonna be a lot of fun a nice outdoor hang there'll be various sapphic balls to kick and throw around and <laughs> sapphic balls Sapphic balls. If I say balls, it just sounds too aggressive. <laughs> there going to be some balls we're throwing around. No, they're sapphic. We're going to be volleying sapphic balls. We're going to be yes. kicking sapphic balls. Spiking sapphic balls. Yes. Les Volley will be in the house from Fire Island. We have dyke soccer. Do we have dyke soccer? We're trying to get Dyke Soccer. There's Rusting Pitch Face. We'll see who else will be there, but it'll be a great place to uh, get together, catch up, have some Dyke beer, maybe in a brown paper bag so that we don't get in trouble because this will be at a park in Queens. Yes, the Dykes are descending on Queens. They'll all be going north from Brooklyn <laughs> for the occasion. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be a mass dyke exodus. I'm looking forward to the transit system that day. Right. <laughs> anyway, another announcement. We're going to be changing up the way we do our episodes. Sure are. You're still going to hear about the gayest things we've done. Of course, our interview uh, is going to be main stage, as always, and our advice at the end. But everything else, we're moving over to Patreon for our patrons. So that's patreon.com 
slash diking out. And we're just doing these changes to make things a little bit more sustainable for us and so that we can bring more content for the patrons because that's who keeps the podcast uh, afloat, really. And we're still going to be broadcasting on stereo three times a week. More about that later. So there are a lot of ways you can hear us, but the episodes are getting, you know, let's be honest. The episodes are getting (laughs) longer and longer, really long. And we've had to cut so much out of our interviews to make everything fit. And we're like, we can no longer fit all these parts. And the, the interviews, when we have these awesome uh, people on, we don't want to have to lose a lot of that conversation so that Melody and I can talk about like our diva cups or whatever yeah. is going on in our lives that week. We don't uh, need to cut still... interviews for our pandemic depression. <laughs> right, right. It's still riveting content. And I, I, <laughs> I recommend you go to Patreon to get that in the in the future. That's where we're going to give our movie reviews and all that kind of fun stuff. We'll be living there from now on. But you'll still hear about us. You'll still know what's going on in our lives and the big things. Probably more be. than ever via stereo. Yes. Yes. Stereo.com slash TGI Carolyn or, or slash Melody Kamali. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> It's all in our show notes, guys. Well, well, let's rip the Band-Aid off and get right into it. Melody, what's the gayest thing you did this week? <sighs> well, you I mean, I had one locked and loaded, but you did mention Diva Cups. And I just have to quickly say, it might be the gayest thing of the week that this weekend I am getting phantom cramps because my girlfriend's on her period. Is that a thing? Within lesbian relationships, it's like she got her period and I'm acting as if I have mine. Like I'm curled up on the couch with her. I'm making all the same excuses, but I'm nowhere near mine. And I'm, I feel the phantom cramps. Like she had to take a weed gummy. I'm like, oh, you got to please pass that over to me. I'm feeling it, babe. I feel it for you, honey. Is that a thing? Phantom cramps? I've, I, I haven't mean- Googled it. That sounds so gay. <laughs> that sounds like the gayest thing is to get phantom cramps. So I, I feel for her, literally. It must, it must be a thing then. Otherwise, I talked about this on the stereo app, but as some of you know, I had to take my cat to the emergency room midweek. My cat mysteriously somehow sliced under his jaw area. There was so much blood. It was horrifying. I don't need to get into those details. He's so much better now. He's recovering. But when we were on our way back from the Nothing animal worse hospital, than a cat pussy. <laughs> am I right? Or am I right? Gushing blood. In a Aren't you used to pussies gushing blood? Yeah. <laughs> Two periods. Yeah. Oh, so many cat pussy jokes. I'll stop right there. Keep going, Melody. <laughs> yeah, you're maxed out. So yep. I we were coming back from the car. We were able to find parking one block away. A miracle for around rush hour in Brooklyn. It was pouring rain. We were bringing our cat in from the car. And we had to walk one city block to get home, right? And there's so much rain like thudding on the carrier for him and it was scary really setting him. the scene yeah <laughs> so we I feel had, like I'm there we had our one umbrella and we're like curled up together like linked arms and the umbrella isn't over us it's over the cat we're drenched in the rain and it's over the cat carrier so the thudding of the rain doesn't upset him even more oh <laughs> people were looking at us like we were crazy I mean it was like near flooding it was like torrential <laughs> downpour 
<laughs> and we're soaked. The cat is a little less anxious, so it was worth it. That, that's that's pretty gay, right? Yeah, I guess that's the one time you don't want a pussy to get wet. Oh, oh I did it again. I'm sorry. Oops, I'm sorry. She did it again. Every time I'm about to sit down to record this podcast, I, I forget and I turn to my girlfriend and go, what is the gayest thing I did this week? And it, I'm not kidding. Every single time it's cat related. So I feel like so many of mine are. I'm going to be mindful moving forward to at least jot down something that doesn't have to do with my cat if you're sick of hearing about him. Well, Phantom Cramps is a good one. That's a good secondary non-cat. Thank you so much. Gay thing. What about you, Carolyn? What's the gayest thing you did this week? Okay, this is another two-part gayest thing because one is more like something that happened to me and the other one I like actively did. I bought camping pants from L.L. Bean and that felt really gay. These are pants that are uh, lightweight. They have cargo pockets. The other pockets have zippers on them. They're the gayest pants I've bought in a while. Mm -hmm. Cecilia and I both brought them into the same changing room and tried them on at Gay. the same time. But I said, you cannot buy them in the same color. So she had to go online later and buy them in a different color. So we will have matching camping pants. And I mean, I mean, yeah. Also, you know, just we're just trying to be. Yeah, yeah. We're just trying to be dyke sex symbols over here in our cargo. LL Bean. Camping pants. Hot lesbian gear. We're setting the standard. Zippers are so gay. There's even a gay bar in Dallas, Texas called Zippers. I think it might. It's not a lesbian yes. bar. But like zippers are gay, right? Right. They're gay. And then this has also pull ties at the bottom, you know, so you can get it nice and tight there. Just all sorts of things happening with, with these utility pants. The other thing that happened that I must bring up was that I saw this message on my community group that was like, does anybody want these patio pavers? So these like stones to make a patio. And eventually that was something that we were going to do, but didn't want to do it now just in terms of cost, whatever. But I'm like, these are free. So let's go over and pick them up. But we have to go right now to get them. So Cecilia and I jump in the car. We go to this house. We get there. You know, we both have our masks on. I'm wearing aviator sunglasses. She texted me on the way and said, you might want to bring somebody else because it's going to be a lot to load up your car. Over a thousand pounds of stone that we moved from this person's backyard into our car multiple trips. And at one point, she goes to her boyfriend and said, hey, do you think you can give them a hand? She's just here with her daughter. <laughs> no. Where in that scenario, I'm the mother of Cecilia. Four years older than you, right? She's four years older than me. <laughs> now, Cecilia was wearing like a leopard print fanny pack and then also had a colorful headband on and then like a cutesy mask. So okay. maybe that. A woman who came of it? age in the 80s for sure. Yeah, she's, she's wearing her van checkered slip-ons. But still. <laughs> I th This made me want to like run and dye my hair pink again because when my hair was pink, somebody thought that I was Cecilia's daughter. So now we're even. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you so gotta need the get your manic again, panic so. <laughs> on quick. Right. I need to like pierce my nose or something so that doesn't happen again. 
And we had to like make multiple trips over multiple days because I don't have a pickup truck or anything. I just have like a normal car that can't carry that much extra weight. So I think by like the fourth time that we came back to the house, I hope that she realized that we were definitely not mother and daughter. I would be grabbing her ass and making it known. <laughs> were you afraid maybe they were homophobic and they were going to rescind the offer if you had corrected them? No, it was like a lot of kids were around and, you know, we just wanted to, and there were like other men there working in the yard and it wasn't like a time to, you know, wave the pride flag. I know people were like, Oh, I would be so pissed. I'm like, I feel honored that someone would think that uh, a goddess such as Cecilia could come from my vagina. Hey, mister. (laughs) She's my mama. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the gayest thing. Well, today we are diking out with editor, journalist, and now author Gabrielle Korn about feminism. If you consume any queer media online, there's a good chance that you have read her work. She started out at Autostraddle, then was at Refinery29, and quickly worked her way up at Nylon to become the editor-in-chief at only 28 years old. So impressive. She has a book out now called Everybody Else is Perfect. Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining us and diking out with us this week. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. How are you both doing? (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) I just met with Yeah, the weekly side. (laughs) It's just a big question these days. Loaded question, but yeah, we are powering through. (laughs) Well, we ask all of our guests this. What is the gayest thing you did this last week? So this is a hard question for me to answer because I currently have a gay job. So <laughs> my days are filled with gay, period. <laughs> We'd love to hear it. Amazing. That's the best kind of a job, a gay job. I guess I can't really answer it beyond that because there are some <laughs> Working a gay job, count it. That works. Our next segment is called, and this is a new one, it's called Indulge Me, me being Carolyn. And while doing a deep dive into your Instagram, I saw that you have met Madonna. Tell me everything about that encounter in detail. (laughs) Thank you so much for asking me this question. So (laughs) Madonna was debuting her skincare line at Ludlow House on the Lower East Side, and she did this fabulous presentation where she made a lot of jokes about being old and she was wearing a leather dress with a leather apron on it. And then after her presentation, we had the opportunity to take a selfie with Madonna. So all of the beauty editors got in line. So basically there was this selfie station with her hair and makeup team there and very specific lighting and the whole professional camera crew. I got up and I was like, hi, it's nice to meet you. And she was just like, shh. And she like fixed my hair for me, like put her hands on my hair and smoothed it and definitely licked her hand. And then she told me exactly how to pose. She was like, put your cheek against my cheek. And she was like, and now try to relax your mouth as much as possible. And I was like, are you sure? Because I feel like I'm making the weirdest face I've ever made in my life. And she's like, yeah, you just have to like relax your jaw, relax your lip. And then we took the picture and then like months later, I received a heavily retouched (laughs) (laughs) 
hunt for both of us <laughs> image from her team. <laughs> That's incredible. Cheek to cheek. Oh my God. With Madonna. Wow. Yeah. And her cheek was very smooth and very warm. Yeah. I can imagine that. Were you so nervous in line for this? Or at this point, are you used to it because you've met so many people and it's like, whatever, it's just another one, another human. Madonna is not in that category. Like, right. There's a certain tier of celebrity that you get kind of used to meeting and talking to and you realize they're all just people, et cetera. And then it's like, okay, but she's not. I think there is something very different about that category of person. So yeah, I was a nervous wreck. I was like in a cold sweat. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. I have so many thoughts, but that's not what we're talking about today. Your book, Everybody Else is Perfect, is out. I've been reading it. It feels like secondhand therapy, so much so that it hijacked what I wanted to talk about with my therapist this morning. And I'm like, I have uh, these highlighted passages I need to read to you and tell you my feelings about them. I'm guessing that's a common experience that a lot of people, because you touch on these themes that are so vulnerable and what so many women, it almost feels like a universal trait. Like if there were women who said they haven't felt the way that you've described in this book and kind of like the thesis of the book, I wouldn't believe them. At least anybody that grew up in this country. Yeah. And thank you so much for saying that. I feel like that is, that's, that's just so nice. And I, I have found a lot of people relating to a lot of things in a way that I really didn't anticipate. Like one of my worries was, is my experience too specific? Am I not relatable? Um, Mm. But the majority of people that I've talked to have had very specific relatable experiences or very broad relatable experiences on a number of different levels. Like I think most of us have like that one major relationship that goes on for longer than it should. I think we Mm. all have um, bad experiences in the workplace. And I think we all have this weird thing that happens when you're participating in a performance of your own life on the internet. Like all of those things, I think, make us more similar than different. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I obviously related hard to the book, but I don't know if you anticipated like down to even going to college and feeling lost and taking ethnomusicology. I did that my first semester. You talk about oh like being God. directionless <laughs> when you get to college and just taking classes that sound cool. I mean, literally my first college course was ethnomusicology. So this was Maybe. great. I know there's <laughs> universality and specificity with personal essays, but this was just wild <laughs> for me. I wrote, I wrote yes, it for you, actually. Thank you so so much. I really appreciate it. I mean, it's so funny because writing about the things we used to wear in the early 2000s has definitely been like a point for other people where it's like, oh my God, I, I, people have said to me, like, they can't believe that I remember all of those clothes. And it's like, yeah, I think it brings up a lot for people because it's like, we were dressing in such a specific hot girl, 12 year old, 13 year old way, you know, like, why were we wearing yoga pants and folding them all the way down? Who told us <laughs> to do that? But we all did it. And it was such a moment. Definitely. Yeah. I related more toward having a, a male superior kind of call me ungrateful for just asking for fair pay. Oh, yeah. And that. I like, got my highlighter out and I'm like, yep, I've heard this verbatim before. I remember having a conversation with my boss and he was like, yeah, I was 
talking to my wife about you, and the interesting thing about you, Carolyn, it's like, if I give you an orange, you say, well, this orange is nice, but I also want this. And I'm like, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> like, you were talking to your wife about how you think I'm just, like, ungrateful for, for my salary that I know other people at lower levels than me are making more. This is infuriating. Well, now you know that they weren't having sex. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry that happened to you. That is infuriating and not surprising. And yeah, I just, I don't even know what to say about it anymore because I feel like there are yeah. so many bad male bosses out there like wreaking havoc on the lives of young women. Right. And I love how transparent you were about how much you were making at each step and each promotion because that's also something that I think is we're all told isn't polite to talk about, but we all want to know. And it's like knowing that information is what helps us all get more of the pie. And there's like enough to go around. And I always try to do that too, especially with like freelance jobs. I'll let someone know this is what I'm making at this job. Do with that information what you will. Ask for more. Probably don't ask for less. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but just know they can pay me this amount of money and and you should because without that like especially you know everybody knows that women often like sell themselves short and will go in under because we always uh feel bad asking for the things that both we need and we want isn't it amazing that we manage to feel bad about those things <laughs> yes constantly <laughs> yeah. i mean it's so great that you are sharing that information with other people i feel like the nicest things that anyone did for me professionally was tell me what they were making. Uh, true. Otherwise you're just flying blind and you have no idea what you're worth unless you can compare it to other right. people. I didn't ask right. for my first right. raise until I was at least in my mid twenties. And it wasn't until another producer of this production company I was working at told, like took me aside and told me because she had a feeling she knew I was being taken wow. advantage of with my weak rate they were giving us. That was also a weak rate is just spoiler alert to anyone starting out as a freelancer, a great way to be taken advantage of. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, that will get us into our topic for today, which is feminism. And that's kind of a a lofty thing to be uh, discussing. But a lot of the different things in your book do kind of touch on that, like pay and salary. And we're all just trying to get equal footing and have uh, things be fair across all the different intersections of feminism. I want to know first about like how your perception uh, of feminism has changed in the different chapters of your life, because you had this major in feminist and queer studies, was it? Or, Or that was your concentration? And and then going to work in women's media, and now that you're on the other side of that, like, what's the evolution there? I'm trying to think of where to start. Basically, going into women's media as someone with this feminist queer theory background, I always thought of myself as kind of like an infiltrator. The purpose of me being here is to take the system down from within. It's not for me to succeed and climb the ladder. It is to make the changes I want to make and then get out. And... I actually have met a lot of people who felt the same way. Like it turns out there are a lot of people in women's media who are there to change it, which is, I think, why it looks the way it does today. 
But I think in the process, I became really disillusioned with the concept of feminism in general because I watched as the women around me were misinterpreting it and confusing it with success on an individual level versus Mm. success for the collective in a way that raised up the most marginalized identities. It was very much the girl boss thing. And that era was the 2010s, which is when I was coming up in women's media. So What started to happen in women's media as I was participating in it was that content began to get more diverse thanks to the hard work of a lot of people on the inside. However, none of those people, myself included, had any say in what it looked like internally. So we Mm. were working really, really hard to promote feminist values that we believed in, but the people above us weren't working to bring those values into our own workplace. So editorial teams, I think across the industry remained white and cis and young. We were underpaid, we were overworked. And it was like, that was the model. Like you hire young editors, you work them until they burn out and then you replace them with someone younger. There's no sort of like investment in a person as a person, everyone is seen as disposable. And it really just made me feel like this is not my feminism. Like this is something else. This is a performance of feminism. This is an appropriation of feminism for individual success. This is white people trying to say that they're oppressed because they're women. And it just started to feel really gross. Is that part of why you think feminism just always feels like it's kind of a dirty word? Like so many people don't want anything to do with it on on both sides of the spectrum, right? You have conservative women who kind of balk at this notion of feminism. But then you also have some really progressive women who are also like, feminism is problematic and it's been problematic and I don't want to part in it. You know, it's interesting. I feel like feminism was cool for one year. And that was the year (laughs) that Beyonce performed with the word feminist behind her. (laughs) And then it was like, oh my God, we can like this thing without feeling ashamed of it. Yeah. And then it and then it was too much and then it wasn't cool anymore. And so I I do think that there's an element of sexism to it. Like I think that women have a hard time aligning themselves with other women for a million different reasons. Obviously less so with lesbians. I think this is like a straight woman phenomenon. Just want to distinguish <laughs> that. But I think I I mean it's just so complicated because it's like it's both. It's like feminism does have a problematic history. It is complicated. It is an imperfect way to approach social justice, but it's not awful. It's not the worst thing. There are ways to interpret feminism that are really great. However, because it's not cool anymore, everybody's afraid of the word again. And to me, that doesn't feel like progress. Right. Even we were afraid of the word. I'm like, Melody, if we call this feminism, are people going to be afraid to listen to We really had to think about it. I mean, we have to put a disclaimer up top that, like, this is not a buzzkill episode. Right. And, like, also that this is not, like, a turfy conversation. Like, that's the Uh, thing that's killing me right now about the conversations around feminism is, like, like, the rad femme thing. If they want those words and if those words are, like, henceforth to mean those things, I'm happy to get rid of them and find new words. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not that attached to the word feminist or radical. They can have it. (laughs) 
I don't want anything yeah. to do with that conversation. Instead of adding numerical waves, we can just <laughs> scrap it and find a new word. Yeah. That might help, honestly, because I did recently in the wake of the George Floyd protests, Black Lives Matter protests over the summer, I had someone I work for reach out to me and kind of unknowingly offend me talking about BIPOC people to meet like an Iranian woman. And I kind of got upset by the way she was talking about BIPOC people to me so candidly. And I let her know. And uh, the way she waved off the conversation was just by saying, so sorry, you know, I'm, I'm just a problematic second wave feminist. And that was supposed to be the end of the conversation. And I don't want to work for her anymore. You know, like I, (laughs) um, (laughs) one less, you know, client. Well, and didn't she say she doesn't really see you as right? That's what she said. That was before that. She's like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I I didn't even see you as a person. I don't see you as a person of color. I just see you as a lesbian. That's what she said to me. (laughs) 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 Thank you for reminding me of that, Carolyn. Yeah. You're like, okay, now this is like biphobic. Yeah, uh, I know. And I'm actually bi. I'm in a relationship. (laughs) And have been with a woman for a long time, but so she got so much wrong in one text <laughs> message. It's like it's not that hard to not be offensive, right? <laughs> I'm sorry yeah. that that happened to you. That's Thank you. Ridiculous. It's just it's why the the word has like a sour taste in my mouth sometimes too. Like all those instances yeah. Yeah. in one. Yeah, I I do think a lot of it comes with the failures of white women being intersectional and and including other people. And now the latest form of that. And I think when we started talking about intersectionality, we were talking about, okay, like other races, but not so much other genders and gender nonconforming people and trans women and even trans men. And that's where now the turfs in those conversations, it's like they're mad. It seems like they're mad that they have to be intersectional with gender nonconforming people and trans people. Yeah, I mean, they don't want anybody who's not like them. But to your point earlier, it's like that doesn't serve feminism. Like feminism only works if we lift up everybody. It's about equality all around and understanding that within the spectrum of women and womanhood, there are so many differences in people who have different needs and that there's room for all of it. And just because different people require different things doesn't mean that your goal over here is making this goal over here harder or worse. It can all work together and it should. Right. Um, Yeah. I kind of want to know what that's like, because obviously as women, we have to deal with being treated as women in society. And we deal with these kind of things all the time, like in the workplace or being sexualized or being catcalled or being seen as objects, all of that. But you working in women's media specifically, you had to confront feminism, it feels like, in a very overt way, a non-passive way every day. Oh, yeah. It was exhausting. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) And it didn't make me (laughs) likable. You don't say. (laughs) Yeah. Turns out when you criticize the status quo, it really pisses off the people who have been upholding it. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, I also have so many regrets about not doing enough. The things that keep me up at night are like the times that I should have tried harder to convince the people around me to, you know, have more diversity across the board. 
but it was like, and I wrote about this in the book, but I, the things I was up against in hindsight are so funny. I was assigned a story and they wanted it to be called My Beautiful Flaw. And they wanted to cast people who were different looking. That was what the story was told to me. And it was people who had some sort of difference that they derived strength from, that they turned into like this moment of empowerment and could talk about that. And then what happened was every single person that I tried to cast for the story was rejected because they weren't cool looking enough, which of course is very coded language for someone who looks exactly like everyone else you would see in a women's magazine, just with one, like, (laughs) I don't even want to say flaw because it was like, can you find like a gap tooth or like someone with like one blue eye and one green eye? And in the end, I had three people that I got approved for the story and two of them were professional models. One, One was even a runway model and she was albino. So you say you want to celebrate difference, but you're policing what those differences are. And Mm -hmm. also just for like context, I was 24. (laughs) (laughs) I was an assistant. This story should have been like this amazing opportunity for me to have a big splashy byline. And instead I was like, you know, I think this is really fucked up. Yeah. I remember reading that passage, knowing it had to be like closer to the beginning of the 2010s or just like it felt like a very uh, America's Next Top Model idea of a flaw. And it was infuriating to read about. Yeah, Yeah, it was very that. Yeah. Do you think that it helped being young in terms of going in and being, I'm not assuming that that you were naive, but I know in my youth, I was naive. And when you kind of go into work, you get out of college, you get your first job and you're like, I'm going to do this and this, and I'm going to speak up for myself and I'm going to call this out. And you're a lot bolder, I think, than you are later in your career when you've sat back and you're like, okay, well, sometimes it's not going to be the squeaky wheel or sometimes you have to be a little bit more mindful or you can't just go into the room. Like I think of the show, The Bold Type. I'm guessing you're familiar with it. Yeah, I, I can't watch it, but I am yeah. familiar. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a lot of that. Yeah, I've watched uh, a season of it and... It's, it's a lot of that, just like these young girls coming in and they're going to make a difference and like stand up and they're just like walking into the, the editor in chief's office on their like first day being like, I'm going to do a story about this. And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, it was exactly that. And sometimes I'm like, where did that girl go? Like, I wish I could right. just like, it's a good thing. Yeah. I wish I could harness that energy and be as fearless as I was when I was first starting out. But then it was like 10 years later watching countless people who were very talented and hardworking lose their jobs for no reason, the fear set in. Yeah. And now, and now I have this like lucky to be employed feeling that has come after realizing how quickly you can lose everything. And I think just like the way when you're really young, your sense of mortality isn't really fully formed. I think my sense of like, my sense of being unemployed wasn't really fully formed. Yeah. And I think too, getting reprimanded and almost like punished or kind of humiliated, that is also a very common experience for women in their 20s to be reprimanded for being bold or for doing things like ahead of when they're supposed to and rising up in your career at at a fast pace. And people are like, I'm not paying you this much. You're only 25. 
Meanwhile, 25-year-old engineers in Silicon Valley are making $200,000. So, <laughs> right. If you don't want to pay me, you shouldn't expect me to do this level of work. If you're paying someone $40,000 to write 10 stories a day, you can't expect those stories a day to be good. That person is spending most of her time worrying about paying her rent and how she's going to eat. You get what you pay for. And I think yeah. that's something that's really broken in media is that the expectation of people is still so, so high. Your performance has to be flawless, but you're not taken care of in exchange for that. Yeah. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I wonder how Gen Z is going to grapple with balancing the job stability, security to worry about coming into this job market now, but also advocating for themselves. Like I see a lot of viral TikToks that are 20 and 21 year olds even, or people in their early 20s, just lecturing and making sure everyone who has their eyes on their video sees, like, don't ever work above your pay grade. They're just so much more evolved and they have so much more access to this information, like reading your book, like seeing other TikToks. And so they're, at least from the ones I've seen, seem to be very bold in that way. But then they're coming into such instability with this economy after COVID. So I don't know how that'll play out, but... Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting generational difference. I was at Refinery29 twice. And the first time I was there, there was no union. And the second time I was there, the editorial team had unionized. And it was fascinating to me because the majority of the people in the union were the youngest editors. And they were saying no to the things that my generation had just agreed to. They were very clear on what their boundaries were, on what an acceptable salary was, on what an acceptable workload was. And I found myself the last person in the office every day. And this was after I left Nylon, after I was like, I'm going to have boundaries. I'm not going to make work my whole life. I was like, okay, I'm here till seven. That doesn't seem that crazy. The office was dead. There was nobody there. So I do think it, it happened really quickly and it feels very tangible. Yeah. So jealous. <laughs> so happy for them. I am so happy. I'm so happy for them. How about queer feminism and entering these spaces as a queer woman? And you do talk about it in the book that a lot of times straight people, it's like unexpected for them. And it's trying to straddle this line of we need to be inclusive and not have the the norm and the assumption always be a straight woman or this content is like exclusive of queer women and queer folks but also not wanting to be the walking pride flag in the office. 
and treated like that as well. <laughs> yeah, it was a really weird thing to try to navigate because I it was important to me that people knew that I was gay. And I also, as soon as that happened, was super tokenized. There was a lot of pressure to provide a queer perspective to everyone else's work as though I could speak on behalf of an entire community just because I was the only person in the room who represented that community. Right. And I think there was so much unprocessed homophobia in all of those spaces, like so much, not just heterosexual bias, but heterosexual assumption. And I felt like it was always a choice between correcting someone or letting them think I was someone that I'm not. And it's like, that is something that straight people don't have to think about. When you spend all of your time constantly having to make these split second emotional decisions, it's exhausting. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. It, it just is. And it's like, it's not that coming out was hard at that point. It was that I was so tired of feeling like I had to explain myself because no one could leave room for the possibility that I wasn't like them. Yeah. And just all of the functions and uh, events and the nature of that of your job. I love the anecdote about being in Cusco because my wife's Peruvian and she gave me a heads up. She's like, just so you know, these are uh, Incan flags. They're not pride flags. Uh, we <laughs> probably shouldn't hold hands around here. <laughs> yeah. And it, the press trip of it all was those were the spaces that were always the scariest because I hope I don't like offend anybody, but weird press trip people is such a category of person. And <laughs> tell us all about yes. it. <laughs> so are you familiar with press trips as a concept? Not really. Brands will send groups of editors to specific places to promote a thing. And what that thing is varies greatly. Like beauty brands do it a lot. Like especially the fancier ones will like send 10 beauty editors to like the remote island that a moisturizer was built in. And they they put you up in like a five-star luxury hotel. They treat you like a fucking queen for 72 hours and then you fly home and then you owe them an article. So there's also a category of press trips where it's like hotels. So a lot of places that wouldn't otherwise do travel stories, they end up doing travel stories because the editors are being flown and put up. And I tried to be careful about what I picked because it was like, it is exhausting. It is so much time. But at the same time, it's like, when would I ever have a chance to go to Machu Picchu right. for free? And I just owe this hotel five sentences in a travel story about summer, like... I'm going, yeah. but then it's the people who do that, who aren't on staff are freelance travel writers. And a lot of them are retired and this is their second career or they're full-time press trippers and they just go from one press trip to another. It's like, a, hmm. I, I'm sorry, I just went down a rabbit hole of explaining this, but all this is to say <laughs> that I would find myself in these faraway places with a group of strangers who just wanted to talk about their husbands and it was like, by a certain point, all of my coworkers knew I was gay. People who yeah. didn't know me knew I was gay because I had a job that was very visible. At press events, at press trips that were within the industry, it was not a thing. But it was like, you're stuck with 12 people. You're traveling around this country together. And you have no idea how it's going to be received because they're, yeah. they're not from the coasts. They've had these whole lives that don't take place in media. And it was not 
always amazing. There was a woman who told me my body hair was disgusting. There, you know, was that my mom? It was your mom, actually. Yeah, my mom was on that trip. I think. Yeah, been her. Yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Carolyn's mom said that to you. You know, I I was mostly concerned for you when she said, it. but yeah, I mean, it. And then and then you're like trapped with them. Is is I guess the conclusion of that story. So it's like yeah, the, right, the most right. stressful moments for me. That sounds like a nightmare because, I mean, we go through that all the time with that assumption that we're straight, like even I'm constantly on, well, now Zooms with my psychiatrist and she, um, I have mentioned that I have a girlfriend in the past. She, I guess, doesn't remember. And we're trying to find an antidepressant that works and she'll just, you know, throw away comments like, don't worry. It's just like finding the right guy. You just got to kiss a bunch of guys till you find that right pill. You know, like that is exhausting for me. (laughs) And like, do you need a different psychiatrist? Oh my God. Yes. But stuff like that, even I was voting the person helped remember. I was, I told Carolyn, I was putting, or no, my girlfriend was putting her ballot in and she's like, okay, you're going to want to lean in real close. Like you're kissing your boyfriend for the first time. Like I'm just trying (laughs) to vote. (laughs) So for a world where this doesn't happen as much, I guess in the future eventually, but yeah, to be stuck And that sounds like so draining <laughs> to right. be on multiple days long trips dealing with that. And then you have to explain to the people in your real life why you were so miserable while staying in a five star hotel in Paris. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and then for you, especially coming from Babeland, which is the gayest place. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so gay. And then you were writing at Autostraddle. Which also, so did it feel like a culture shock almost when you went to Refinery29 and you're like, the straights, I forgot. A hundred percent. How they can be. Yeah. Yeah. Because it wasn't just my work that was gay. It was like my whole life. Like I had a very tight community of lesbians and we traveled around in a pack together as you do. And I kind of forgot about straight people for a few years, which was really nice. <laughs> I love that. Sometimes it's nice to go to that place. That's why I feel like I'm now that I'm kind of uh, removed and especially in COVID and the pandemic, sometimes I, I do forget they exist and everything. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. me too. To the point where, like, when I see straight couples on TV, I'm like, don't touch her. Like, <laughs> <that's not right." laughs> don't throw it in my face. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to see that. Like, I can respect I, it, but I don't need to see that. Yeah, I don't yeah. care what you do in private, but like. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my God. Can we talk about then male feminists? People who put male feminists in their dating profile bios? I don't know if yes. you've come across it, obviously. You're not. Are they the worst? Seeing What's men your on your Tinder <laughs> searches, but like it, it really you know was a thing for about. a long time. Male feminist. Yeah. I I have encountered some in my life. Yeah. I feel like especially any men working in women's media might fancy themselves a male feminist. And aren't they the ones to watch out for? I just assume that they're date rapists. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's true. I mean, any guy I know who I would describe as a feminist, they would never call themselves a feminist. They're just 
cool. Yeah. Well, it's like the definition of like, show me, don't tell me. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. What about in, in your family? Because I, I feel like a lot of people I meet that their relationship with feminism or how much they are into this idea of feminism was really influenced by like their moms or their aunts or their grandmothers. My, my mom is definitely a feminist. Um, yeah. Was always very clear about what women can do, what women are told not to do. She will get into fights with strangers who call her honey. <laughs> she's, she's that person. She's amazing. And I, I had two sisters. So it was kind of just like a, a girl pile growing up. And my parents never told us that there was anything we couldn't do because we were girls. If anything, right. they were like, because you are girls and you are therefore superior to boys. <laughs> we have very high expectations. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't yeah. allowed to ask my dad for help if there was a problem that needed to be solved, if it was even like remotely physical. I called for my dad once and then I got a talking to. So maybe she was like extra radical about it. But I remember <laughs> specifically like being in a garage and trying to fix something on my bike and my mom being like, you try to fix this yourself. And if you can't, grab your sister. If you guys can't figure it out, then you grab me. And then if we absolutely must, we will go to your father. <laughs> like for anything that would be stereotypically like a dad fix. And I think that really was, yeah, I went on to be a feminist. I noticed I had a cousin growing up my same age. Her mom was like, you you need to grow up and meet a man and just get married and have babies. Her dad listened to Rush Limbaugh. She is now in a relationship. She's so visibly unhappy with a Trump supporter. She's like isolated off from all of her friends and family. Like no, no one really knows what's going on with her. And I just have to wonder like how much did her mom's superficial kind of lessons made that impact. That was to be like, my mom rules. It sounds like your mom rules. I love our moms. <laughs> <laughs> no, my mom does rule. I mean, but it was also like they didn't expect to have a gay daughter. So I think in right. a lot of ways, they also kind of didn't know what to do with me. And they didn't know what to do when I didn't like stick to my mom's timeline in the way that my sister did. Yeah. That, that was a thing too. So it was like, yeah, I was totally raised to be a feminist, but I was also raised with the expectation that I would want the same things that my parents wanted for themselves, which is to get married and have a family really young and live in the suburbs. And none of those things have come true for me. And it feels like that is confusing for my parents. Yeah. I, I think being queer, it does give you like a different perspective on feminism. I never thought that my parents thought I couldn't do things because I was a woman. It was just me and my sister. We didn't have a, a brother who was obviously treated different, which is nice. But because I've only had relationships with women, I haven't had to depend on men in my life. And I think that that gives you like such a different perspective of what's possible because I feel like sometimes it might feel like a little bit easy to go into that role of, and there, there are women like Ali Wong, like jokes about it in her special, like, yeah, sometimes it feels like it would just be nice to 
be the housewife and to not have to like worry about that stuff. And is that bad to admit that? Am I like a terrible feminist for wanting that? And as a lesbian, I've always been like, well, that's never an option. So uh, I either need to figure out how to do it myself or make enough money to pay a man to lift that thing for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I feel like I'm just trying to like manifest early retirement for myself at this point. Yes. Yes. And then just like not do anything and take care of myself. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's the dream. (laughs) Speaking of men and uh, the patriarchy, how do we bring it down? How do we smash it? What's step one? Step two? Step one is everyone needs to become a lesbian. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) And I haven't thought about it beyond that. Yeah. That's a male no. feminist male lesbians. Yeah. No, no male lesbians. <laughs> I, truthfully, in all seriousness, I think that the best we can do to dismantle the patriarchy is think about the ways in which we've internalized it and perpetuated it in our own lives. Um, yes. For me, that was eating disorder recovery. Like, I didn't realize that I had assumed the role of the patriarchy against my own body. And was holding myself to these standards that were not my own standards. And I think we all have something like that. Some expectation of ourselves, some feeling that we have to do a certain thing a certain way because of the messages that we've been given all of our lives. And like, I don't think we can do much to change the messages as individuals, but we can work on how we interact with them and how we might accidentally be like, instead of ignoring them, how we might be internalizing them and acting on them in ways we don't realize. Yeah, it's so hard to shake because like in your book, you have a real self-awareness of this idea that everyone else is perfect and that you can look at all these different bodies and you know, like, okay, yes, like you are perfect just the way you are. Me though, I can't be that way. And I'll feel that too. And I can be hyper aware of it and know that's not fair to do that to myself. But how do we escape this? I guess that's the million dollar question. Right. <laughs> and the book, that's why I'm in therapy. Uh. Same. Yeah. It's not like the book is an answer to that question. It's more sure. just like identifying that it exists. And that I think we all feel really siloed from each other in these feelings of, oh God, I'm supposed to feel like everybody is perfect and I am also perfect, but I still hate myself. But you guys look amazing. And if we're all thinking that, then there's never going to be body positivity, (laughs) you know, like there's never going to be a world where we do feel good about ourselves. If we're all having this feeling of, okay, self-love is great for you, but it's, I can't get there. Yeah. I loved that you delved into the messaging of the body positivity movement and like Mm -hmm. specifically when you're in our newly woke world of marketing based on positivity in quotes, the blame is once again placed on women, but this time it's not our bodies that are wrong. It's our feelings about our bodies that really hit home. I have disordered eating and have struggled with eating disorders. I am not so much met with discomfort when I talk about it with other women. I, I'm now getting that backlash of like the way I feel like if I feel fat one day or if I'm just struggling or even post about it like last week I qualified for the vaccine because I have my eating disorders flared up in the quarantine and it's made me stress eat a lot. So my BMI went high enough to qualify for the vaccine and I just posted a little like 
vaccine card and you know when you snack so much you end up qualifying and it, it's not really a joke because it is the truth and I was met with some comments that are like this is an unnecessary fat joke this is harmful this is toxic but I'm actually not calling myself fat I think the BMI is the joke in this and <laughs> like I'm just getting a vaccine like just like to even bringing up Weight loss is not fat phobic. It's not toxic to even to just talk about things generally anymore. It's just very hard to navigate how we're supposed to talk about these issues now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are so policed by one another, especially on social media about this issue. And it's like, can it just be bad enough that you've been struggling with your eating disorder in quarantine? Like, do you have to also take care of other people's feelings about the way you talk about it? Like, like I clearly uh, triggered people who have their own issues. I know that. And I do feel bad, but I I was also offended at the same time and I need to take care of myself. (laughs) First and foremost, I don't know. I have to tread really lightly and it gets exhausting lately. Yeah, it is exhausting. And I think something in what you said reminded me of what I have heard fat activists say about the root of fat phobia, which is that people hate fat women because they're afraid of their happiness. Because it's like, if you can be fat and happy, why am I working so hard to be skinny and is my whole life a lie. Like, I think it really calls into question everything for people and it's easier to just be fearful and hateful. And I'm really sorry about the music happening outside my window (laughs) on the first floor. It happens, man. That sounds like a Jillian Michaels in a nutshell. Oh my God. (laughs) I don't know her, but uh, a lot of, the stuff that she says and because of her own issues with that it's like this fear of I've worked so hard and have deprived myself of so much to get to this point so I cannot accept that other people could be happy in this space and it's just sad but yeah let's put her on network tv on the biggest loser to scream at fat people (laughs) and just I guess project her own trauma yeah. <laughs> it, it sucks. Like I really, I feel, <laughs> I have strong feelings about her. I actually, uh, complicated feelings. When I was very, very, like, I was morbidly obese for the longest time. I knew I always wanted to do comedy, but I didn't let myself even start until I, I was like, I need to lose 100 pounds before I start because I was too afraid of even putting myself out there as a fat person. And I did that through problematic disordered dieting and Jillian Michaels. Like she was the one who led me through the weight loss. So like really messed with me. And like to this day, I can only really work out with a mean woman like yelling at me. Um, It was just a crazy level of aggression that I was like, this is the only way this, I need to be shamed out of it. Cause she does even in her yoga (laughs) videos, she's weirdly aggressive Uh and like barking at you to get poses, right. (laughs) Just being really skeptical about yoga in general. It's like, yeah, Jillian, because it's about looking inward and (laughs) connecting with uh, not the appearance of your abs. My God. (laughs) Sorry for that Jillian Michaels rant. No, I loved it. I feel like there's this idea that inside all of us is a thinner, better woman. Mm. And only that woman is allowed happiness and to chase her goals and, you know, to become a stand-up comic like 
the larger version of us doesn't deserve those things. And life becomes about accessing that smaller, better, happier person when really we're always ourselves as it turns out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Almost as if we are ourselves. I (laughs) must remember. (laughs) Yeah. And for me, what was so complicated about my eating disorder and my recovery was that in a lot of ways, it was true that the skinnier version of me was more successful because when I was around a hundred pounds, that's when my career took off. And that's when I was photographed on the street and invited to things and given designer clothes and they fit me. So I'm getting all of these rewards for being skinny. I'm Mm -hmm. dying. (laughs) Well, you know, it is, is it true that skinnier me is deserving of all of these things? And then of course I realized this is all superficial. I'm totally miserable. I hate my life and I'm not eating. And it all kind of fell apart in tandem with that realization. But it's, it's hard when like the world we're surrounded by hasn't really caught up to what I think self-actualized people who have recovered or have tried to recover realize or are trying to realize it's like you have to distance yourself from the things you're told every single day and keep in mind that those things are not true right Mm -hmm. i i want to circle back to this idea of policing each other and especially in feminism and as everyone's trying to do better and be more, at least I would hope, be more intersectional and um, educate themselves. And at the same time, because we're trying to hold ourselves and especially in the queer community, because we're holding each other to a higher standard, we're calling out each other more. And it just seems like this scary thing that I've seen so many people just run off the internet or who are like, you know what, I'm not going to speak on these issues more because I thought I was trying to help and I did it in the wrong way. And I thought I was listening and I thought, and even between groups of the same people, even within the trans community, there's such disagreement. And then they're all pointing fingers and being like, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. And like, you're causing harm. No, you're causing harm. And we do this to each other. And Every time I just think straight men aren't doing this. Like they're they're not <laughs> yeah. they're not in their circles what like they were, oh, Derek, that's problematic. <laughs> yeah. Imagine. Yeah. Um yeah, queer people hate everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no there's no pleasing truth. <laughs> and I I don't know. Like it's it's so stressful. We're holding each other to these impossible standards and not giving people the space to grow and learn if they mess up. Yeah. It it feels like it has turned a corner from productive conversation to bullying in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that doesn't mean it always is. Like I think a lot of people who get called out do need to be called out. For sure. But I also think a lot of people need to be called in, as they say. And, right, right. And I don't leave a little bit of room for growth. Yeah. And, and a what, little bit less shame. Yeah, there's so much shame. And I think people become so isolated and like pushed out of the community. And it's like that's not going to help their feelings about the community. <laughs> Yeah. 
Yeah. They're not going to be like, wow, I wish I could be more politically correct so that these people who ostracized me are right. nice to me again. <laughs> right. <laughs> trying to make friends at queer bingo. God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because a lot of those things have spilled over into the world of heterosexuals. And I observed it last summer in women's media when editors in chief across the board started getting called out for racism and for allowing racism to flourish under them. It was so interesting because it was a lot of the same conversations that had already happened in the queer community and watching Mm. these straight white women try to navigate call out culture. It was different for sure. Yeah. Sometimes I I always think of this one example where it was after like the women's march and a person I know, a friend of mine posted, and this is like like a cis white woman. And she's like, it's super problematic how many signs with ovaries on them that I saw at the Women's March because trans women are women. I'm like, yes, but also people are marching because their ovaries are being legislated. So there's room for both to be true. Just because somebody's holding a sign that has ovaries on it isn't a denial that trans women are women or that trans men don't need to be included in these conversations uh, about like abortion access or, you know, things like that. Yeah. There's this attitude that like one identity cancels out the other. Yeah. Instead of like, we contain multitudes. Like that's not on the table apparently. What happened to that? Yeah. I I was like, who, I was like, who are you policing here? Like who's supposed to, to feel bad and like, I guess you think you're serving trans women, but trans women don't want to be like shaming cis women who care about their ovaries. Like, right. Yeah. And now it's just causing confusion because for a second I was like, oh, is that problematic? And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. No, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, I guess it just, I don't know, feminism. Yeah. Period. Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, I have a shirt that says woman up and. I'm increasingly afraid to wear it <laughs> like because yes, of like I have a sh- things I have like a shirt this. that says human woman. And I'm afraid that if I wear it, people are like, oh, look at this cis head over here. Yeah. Just like rubbing it in our faces. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that takes us back to how we started this conversation, which is like feminism is not cool again. Right. We we got like a great five minutes of it being cool and we all bought t-shirts and. Did capitalism have a big hand in destroying it? The girl boss of it all? Yeah. Yeah. The marketing of feminism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Especially after the women's march, I was hyper aware of it. People could say just scoff and say pink pussy hat and I would freak out. (laughs) Like I like. Right. Had to really reevaluate. or I thought I had to reevaluate my relationship with feminism, which is really basic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like at its core, you know, like as it should be. Yeah. Um, one more thing. Obviously, you talk about fashion in your book. You're the editor in chief of Nylon. I love this one chapter where you intertwine fashion and feminism and the way we see our bodies from the low rise chapter, from low rise genes yes. and how our attitudes towards our bodies and like just how locked in with the fashion it was, was a beautiful way of illustrating that and just thank you for that. I yeah. I mean obviously highly recommend everyone read the book. That was such a great chapter for me. The part I love it's like now we have power and we can be like no, 
Don't bring these back. Yeah, right. it's like there's no mystery to how these trends are created. Like fashion yeah. week used to be like a locked door thing that you had no idea about and suddenly something was cool. And now it's like, oh no, we can see every step of the process. Right. I'm yeah. not falling for it this time. I've grown. Yeah. And I can let a trend pass me by. Who knew? God bless. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> That's what's also, I keep bringing up Gen Z. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with Gen Z. It's fascinating. I have to get off TikTok. But like, they are so empowered. They have access to all this information. But then there's obviously this like, I mean, there's a lot of jokes around it, but like the silly discourse about like, Gen Z has canceled high-rise skinny jeans. They're bringing back flares and lower jeans, uh, low-rise jeans. But And middle parts, exactly. But then I'm like, are they going to embrace... Like, they seem so body positive, too. So is this just, like, an aesthetic that they're into and they're warmly embracing with the knowledge (laughs) or slight awareness that, like, their bodies are perfect how they are? And, I know, they just, like, I have no idea. That's what confuses me. (laughs) I don't know, because I feel like you can tell a lot about a generation by looking at their celebrities and their celebrities look exactly like ours did, if not True. thinner. Like right. they're right. still idolizing the same body types. And so I don't I don't know how deep it goes. And I feel the same as you. I am happy to not participate in lower eye skinny jeans ever again. And I I don't know if that's because I'm evolved or old. <laughs> like maybe this is just what happens. I'm traumatized. I really am. <laughs> just oh man. You wrote about it beautifully, yeah. the just the yeah. horrors and the pain of those yeah. trends. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you about your gig now. Can you talk a little bit about working with the most at Netflix? Because this is something that like all of a sudden was on my radar and I'm like, what's going on at Netflix? I am so happy to hear that. So I am running Most, which is Netflix's LGBTQ plus social media platform. And we are an audience first channel. So I'm doing strategy for it. We're on Instagram and Twitter. Past guest and friend of the podcast, Just Tom, has an advice series on it. Yes. And yeah, I, I saw some people retweeting stuff from Most. And then I saw Jess's series. I'm like... This is cool. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. When I started, I really prioritized queer and trans women. And I keep having these lovely conversations like this one where queer women say, I all of a sudden saw most. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I do know how to do social media strategy. You do. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know it was. It, so it's it was working. around because it just popped on my radar when I saw yeah, just yeah. Tom I really like, thought it was like launch two months ago or so oh my god that makes me so happy no it's like a it's I think two years old at this point oh wow wow I've been doing it for six months very good at your job thank you yes well where's the best place for people to buy your book my book is available mostly everywhere if you go to my instagram which is at gabrielle corn and that's corn with a k I have like a link to the Simon & Schuster page and they give you a bunch of different options for Rindamite. Awesome. Great. Well, I hope that everybody reads it. Well, Gabrielle, thank you so much. And this was so much fun and it was great getting to speak with you today. Thank you so much for having me. This was so great. Melody, how do you feel about feminism after all that? I'm feeling like I'm ready to finally throw on my woman up shirt and wear it loud and proud. How do you feel? I feel like I'm going to keep my armpit hair that I've grown out. Hell yeah. 
All right, let's move on to this week's listener question. This one's short and sweet. How do you deal with a breakup when you live together and don't have the money to move out? Yikes. Yikes. Our, first of all, our collective yes. heart goes out. It's a common issue, especially in major cities where you generally can only afford to live in an apartment if you are with a partner. So, yes. What do you do when you live together and you don't have the money to move out, assuming that you've come to the agreement that you're breaking up, right? Right. I'm going to give first some unhelpful advice, which is to anybody listening, my advice is before you move in with someone, make sure that you can afford the rent on your own. I yeah. Or that it's a situation where if things didn't work out, if you're not married, you should be able to afford the rent on your your own and have some type of escape plan going into it. That's how you avoid being in the situation. I know it's, it's not romantic. Said and done. Oh yeah, like I know it's like an escape plan. That's not the most romantic right, right, right. Thing, but it's not romantic. So I would go to my friends first. I know not everybody has friends who can help out, but like friends are usually pretty clutch in these situations. I know that if I had a friend who needed to move out, even if I didn't have an extra room, I would say you can stay on my couch for a little bit, try to help them out any way that I could. There's usually a way to remove yourself. If you can't move out altogether, like maybe you can keep your stuff there, but spend your time not in the apartment and that can give you enough of a buffer, but you should definitely not be sleeping in the same bed. I had an ex who I remember started dating someone else and when they broke up, they were still sharing the same bed. And we've had, I think, past guests of the podcast. Glow Butler. Looking at you, Glow Butler. Glow went through this last year and was still like living in the same bedroom and everything. Yeah. (laughs) But Glow was always out and would just come back for the essentials. Yeah. Being in the same bed, that's a recipe for disaster. You have to get some screens up or something and take over the living room or make physical boundaries. Physical boundaries you know, get on a different schedule and get out of there as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Crashing on friends' couches while you save up some money to then check out their Facebook groups for every city for housing while looking for a new room to rent. I've had friends when I was struggling in my like early to mid-20s who were like a little older than me or had more money saved to even help out. Like they've offered to help with money to like lend me money while I got back on my feet. That's an option depending on who your friends are. Find a sugar mama. Find a sugar mama. Do they make apps for sugar mamas? I know they're for sugar daddies to find their sugar babies. I don't think there are enough sugar mamas. What if you even started a GoFundMe? I feel like that's how (laughs) Americans are now like climbing their way out of any problem within our broken system of a country. You could even start a modest GoFundMe because we see big medical like exorbitant amounts like for depending on where you live. um, But rent can only be so much, right? That's like not that much of a goal on GoFundMe. 
Yeah, if if you need to move out, getting roommates, this all depends on where you live. Right. But I feel like if you're in, in any place, there should be a situation where you can rent a room for little money. Yeah. At least temporarily until you can get back on your Airbnb. On your I once stayed in an Airbnb that was like... $30 a night. Okay, yeah, it was the one that was super problematic. I ended up getting my refund and Airbnb paid for a hotel up to $250 a night because this girl did come home inebriated, got in the bed with me while I was naked and groped me. So, <gasps> did I tell you about this? That's like a whole, I can't even, it's not a quick anecdote. It's like when I was in Austin for that comedy festival, fall 2019, I was like, this is dirt cheap and very close to the venue where I'll be performing. That's fine. I'll be out and about anyways. The first night I was in this Airbnb, this girl came home and I was at 5 a.m., 4.35 a.m. I'm woken up to her coming into the bedroom, getting in the bed with me. And I was like, oh, I think you're in the wrong room. I think you meant to go to your room trying to like shake her awake. And she like spooned me and I was naked. She grabbed my boob, wrapped around. And then she goes, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And I jumped. (sighs) I know that's kind of. Okay. (laughs) A little. She but like in a very like greasy way. You know, like she's like a musician. Like, anyways, and it's hot there. Greasy and I was like, hot. you're already greasy and I'm sweaty. And I'm, no, I'm not that into it. I mean, also, you're also that molesting drunk. me and I have a girlfriend. But right. um, <laughs> oh my God. So it was like 5 a.m. I jump out of the bed. I go into the other, uh, to the living room and I'm pacing. I don't know what to do because nothing's open. I never got the Wi Fi from her because I came in, I flew in like late the night before. So I still had no internet, no reception, and my phone's about to die. I'm trying to figure out what to do. I eventually was able to get free Wi-Fi from a neighbor. Like I walked outside, finally got in touch with Airbnb and they um, were like, you can get a hotel up to $250 a night. Went straight to the Hilton Homewood Suites <laughs> downtown. So what you're saying to this listener is there's an Airbnb for 30 bucks a night. She got kicked Austin. off the platform and she will like, I've had to block her on so many platforms. She is stalking me and very upset and claims that she wasn't drunk. And the reason this all happened is because she had a CBD cigarette the night before. <laughs> okay. And then I move out and I'm blocking her and she's threatening me. She's sending me threatening texts. Like I got rid of her soul income from Airbnb. I'm like, that's your soul. $30 a night. Okay. She a million percent should have lost all privileges to do that. And I feel not bad for her at yeah. all. That's completely, that's traumatic. That's a traumatic experience. Truly. That, that's like a nightmare to be sleeping, to also be naked. I feel like we've gotten away <laughs> oh, from yeah, the we're question. Way off topic. God. Um, um, well, well, I feel like we gave you a lot of good advice. Safety nets, friends, for... GoFundMe, community outreach, friends. Yeah, yeah. and boundaries. Physical, physical boundaries. Physical boundaries. I mean, also. And barriers. Social yeah. boundaries, too. Yeah. Your ex should respect this. I mean, try your best, but I know people who've had to live a couple of months with an ex and they were able to create... I know past uh, co-hosts of this podcast <laughs> who have had to live with their ex and create physical <laughs> boundaries. And it worked until they were able to move their stuff out. And it's just like an awkward living situation, but you get through it. it sucks. And yeah, just don't make the mistake of thinking like, oh, well, I have to spoon her on the couch and watch movies together. Or I have to 
do these things for her or the relationship I have to is over. share the bed. Yeah, it's over. Your you roommates know. know. Yeah. If you have a question, you can send it to us, out at gmail.com. Give us a follow on social media. We're not going to tell you where this time. You're going to have to work for it if you're not following us already. Thanks for diking out with us this week. And we'll see you next Tuesday. Hi, I'm S.E., one of the hosts of Bitches on Comics, the most welcoming place for LGBTQ plus folks and women to chat comics, fiction, and pop culture. Bitches are both wanted and encouraged on our podcast. We speak with amazing guests about the media they've created, critiqued, and loved. And you don't have to just take our word for the great time we're having over here. We've been named a Best Comic Book Podcast by several publications, including Book Riot, The Mary Sue, and Comic Book Herald. So tune in and listen to us talk with your faves like Carmen Maria Machado, Amy Chu, Mari Naomi, Anthony Oliveira, and many, many others. Our whole goal is to include more folks in the comic book and pop culture world and to help new readers find comics and speculative books they'll love, with no shade for being new. You can find Bitches on Comics wherever you get your podcasts, and you can learn more at bitchesoncomics.com.